Did we bring the tent in? Mister, you can't park there. A lonely tricorn left alone on the table, and a great time had by all at the Gatsby Day Parade. Greetings and welcome in to the Patuxa General. I am your host, Jess. This week we talk about jello shots and grilled chicken legs. But first, I must thank our Patreon subscribers. These summer fun folks are the surf, sun, fire, shellfish, marshmallows, chocolates, and graham crackers that is the camping adventure we call the Patuxet General, without whom we would be rained out. If you would like to become one of these outside loving pals, check out our Patreon page or simply follow the link in the show notes. So thank you. More years ago than I would like to admit, when I was still working with my Little Falls family, it was a regular tradition to have a tipple while watching the parade. That being the case, it was not legal to stand on the street with a libation. Subtlety is key. Many folks came up with ingenious ways to indulge out in the air. Of course, it started with hip flasks, then coffee cups, onto lemonade and iced coffee cups, but the winner and the drink that inspired endless competition, Jell-O shots. They eventually came in really crazy flavors, pina colada, blue raspberry, key lime pie, nutty Irishman, espresso, whatever their little heart desired. This is the way we fly around here at the General. As far as Jell-O shots go, we do strawberry. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And this makes 16 shots. For this recipe, you will need two packages of strawberry jello or one double pack, two cups of boiling water, one cup ice cold water, one and a quarter cup cold vodka of your choice, three ounces Dixie style cups. You can choose different flavor using different flavored vodkas or jellos. First, you dissolve the jello mix in the boiling water. Then add one cup of ice cold water. Finally, add the vodka. Mix together and pour into the cups, only filling them about three-quarters of the way. Refrigerate covered overnight and pass them only to your good friends in the know. And enjoy! The Gatsby Days Parade brings folks from all over every year. Friends, relatives, and perfect strangers all pack into tiny Patuxet Village. This year, we had a couple saved up. Parades we went to in masks or rained out parades. They all showed up this time. There was no parking for miles around the village. And your humble host was there, tricorn on my head, chatting with guests and passers-by the general. We gathered a good-sized group in the backyard and they started to get hungry. It was a good thing that the afternoon before I did all my food prep, just in case a crowd showed up. The day was long, and I was losing steam, but a jello shot later, and I was ready to grill. I used wood charcoal for the fire, and everything turned out fantastic, but it would not have if I hadn't done this recipe first. I used this marinade for the vegetables as well as the chicken, though not in the same bag, of course. My family was especially taken with the marinated grilled broccoli. For this recipe, you will need four tablespoons of olive oil, three pounds of chicken legs, if you are doing chicken legs, and right now we are. Four garlic cloves, big ones. Two inches of grated ginger, about four tablespoons. Three tablespoons honey, 
1 teaspoon Frank's Red Hot, 2 tablespoons liquid aminos, 1 tablespoon dried thyme, 1 tablespoon spicy brown mustard, and the juice of 2 limes, 3 tablespoons apple cider vinegar, 1 quarter cup water, 2 tablespoons grated turmeric. I split the chicken legs into two separate gallon-size zip plastic bags. At this time, I did the same with my assorted seasonal vegetables in a different bag. This marinade is enough for both chicken leg bags. Whisk everything together and pour over the chicken already in the bags. Refrigerate at least overnight. This way you can take out the bags right outside and grill the legs and or veg and easily throw away the contaminated bags. This method is also useful for camping when you have sparse kitchen sanitation at best. I grilled mine over a medium hot fire, gently turning it as it browned, but also let them sit for five minutes with the hood closed when they were evenly brown on the cool side of the grill. When the meat has bounced back or reaches 175 degrees Fahrenheit, it's done. Let it rest for a minute or two, if you get to. Ta-da! Dinner for an army. Enjoy. I want to tell you about my friend Mike and his electromagnetic pinball museum and restoration arcade. It's an all-inclusive place to relax and share anything related to modern pinball, EM pinball, and arcade games. A group of pinball and arcade fans with an addiction to games of all kinds and Lego too. $10 gets you free play on pinball and arcade games all day. You can find them at 881 Main Street, Pawtucket, Rhode Island, or online at www.electromagneticpinballmuseum.com. And now in our House in the Corner series, the continued reading of The Shunned House by H.P. Lovecraft, Chapter 2. Not until my adult years did my uncle set before me the notes and data that he had collected concerning the shunned house. Dr. Whipple was a sane, conservative physician of the old school, and for all his interest in the place was not eager to encourage young thoughts toward the abnormal. His own view, postulating simply a building and location of markedly unsanitary qualities, had nothing to do with abnormality, but he realized that the very picturesqueness which aroused his own interest would, in a boy's fanciful mind, take on all manner of gruesome, imaginative associations. The doctor was a bachelor, a white-haired, clean-shaven, old-fashioned gentleman, a local historian of note who had often broken a lance with such controversial guardians of tradition such as Sidney S. Ryder and Thomas W. Bicknell. He lived with one manservant in a Georgian homestead with a knocker and iron-railed steps balanced eerily on the steep ascent of North Court Street beside the ancient brick court and colony house where his grandfather, a cousin of that celebrated privateerman, Captain Whipple, who burnt His Majesty's armed schooner Gaspy in 1772, had voted in the legislature on May 4, 1776, for the independence of the Rhode Island colony. Around him in the damp, low-ceiling library with the musty white paneling, 
heavily carved overmantel, and small-paned vine-shaded windows, where relics and records of his ancient family, among which there are many dubious allusions to the shunned house on Benefit Street. That pest spot lies not far distant, for Benefit runs lengthways just above the courthouse, along the precipitous hill where the first settlement climbed. When, in the end, my insistent pestering and maturing years invoked from my uncle the hoarded lore I sought, there lay before me a strange enough chronicle, long-winded, satirical, and drearily genealogical for some of what the matter was. There ran through it a continuous thread of brooding, tenacious horror and preternatural malevolence, which impressed me even more than it had impressed the good doctor. Separate events fitted together uncannily, and seemingly irrelevant details held minds of hideous possibilities. A new and burning curiosity grew in me, compared to which my boyish curiosity was feeble and incolate. The first revelation led to an exhaustive search, and finally to that shuddering quest which proved so disastrous to me and mine. For at the last, my uncle insisted on joining the search that I had commenced, and after a certain night in that house, he did not come away with me. I am lonely without the gentle soul whose long years were filled only with honor, virtue, good taste, benevolence, and learning. I have reared a marble urn to his memory in St. John's Churchyard, the place that Poe loved. The hidden grove of giant willows on the hill, where tombs and headstones huddle quietly between the hoary bulk of the church and the houses and bank walls of Benefit Street. The history of the house, opening amidst a maze of dates, revealed no trace of the sinister either about its construction or about the prosperous and honorable family who built it. Yet from the first taint of calamity soon increased to a boding significance was apparent. My uncle's carefully compiled record began with the building of the structure in 1763 and followed the theme with an unusual amount of detail. The shunned house, it seems, was first inhabited by William Harris and his wife, Rhody Dexter, with their children, Elkanah, born in 1755, Abigail, born in 1757, and William Jr., born in 1759, and Ruth, born in 1761. Harris was a substantial merchant and seaman in the West India trade, connected with the firm of Obadiah Brown and his nephews. After Brown's death in 1761, the new firm of Nicholas Brown and Company made him master of the brig Prudence, Providence-built of 120 tons, thus enabling him to erect the new homestead he had desired ever since his marriage. The site he had chosen, a recently straightened part of the new and fashionable back street, which ran along the side of the hill above crowded Cheapside, was all that he could have wished, and the building did justice to the location. It was the best that moderate means could afford, and Harris hastened to move in before the birth of their fifth child, which the family expected. That child, a boy, came in December, but was stillborn. Nor was any child to be born alive in that house for a century and a half. The next April, sickness occurred among the children, and Abigail and Ruth died before the month was over. Dr. Job Ives diagnosed the trouble with some infantile fever, though others declared it was more of a wasting away or decline. It seemed, in any event, to be contagious. 
for Hannah Bowen, one of the servants, died of it the following June. Eli Littison, the other servant, constantly complained of weakness and would have returned to his father's farm in Rehoboth, but for a sudden attachment to Metabel Pierce, who was hired to succeed Hannah. He died the next year, a sad year indeed, since it marked the death of William Harris himself enfeebled as he was by the climate of Martinique, where his occupation had kept him for considerable periods during the preceding decade. The widowed Ruby Harris never recovered from the shock of her husband's death, and the passing of her firstborn, Alcana, two years later was the final blow to her reason. In 1768, she fell victim to a mild form of insanity and was therefore confined to the upper part of the house. Her elder maiden sister, Mercy Dexter, having moved in to take charge of the family. Mercy was a plain, raw-boned woman of great strength, but her health visibly declined from the time of her advent. She was greatly devoted to her unfortunate sister, and had an especial affection for her only surviving nephew, William, who, from a sturdy infant, had become a sickly, spindling lad. In the same year that Metabel died, or the servant preserved Smith left without coherent explanation, or at least with some wild tales and a complaint that he disliked the smell of the place. For a time, Mercy could secure no more help, since the seven deaths and case of madness, all occurring within five years' space, had begun to set in motion the body of fireside rumor, which later became so bizarre. Ultimately, she obtained new servants from out of town. Anne White, a morose woman from that part of North Kingston, now set off as the township of Exeter, and a capable Boston man named Zenas Lowe. It was Anne White who first gave definite shape to the sinister idle talk. Mercy should have known better than to hire anyone from Nooseneck Hill County, for that remote bit of backwoods was then, as now, a seat of the most uncomfortable superstitions. As late as 1892, an Exeter community exhumed a dead body and unceremoniously burnt its heart in order to prevent certain alleged visitations injurious to the public health and peace. One might imagine the point of view of the same section in 1768. Anne's tongue was perniciously active, and within a few months, Mercy discharged her, filling her place with a faithful and amiable Amazon from Newport, Maria Robbins. Meanwhile, poor Rhody Harris, in her madness, gave voice to the dreams and imaginings of the most hideous sort. At times, her screams would become insupportable, and for long periods, she would utter shrieking horrors which necessitated her son's temporary residence with his cousin Peleg Harris in Presbyterian Lane near the new college building. The boy would seem to improve after these visits, and had Mercy been wise as she was well-meaning, she would have let him live permanently with Peleg. Just what, Mrs. Harris cried out in her fits of violence? Tradition hastens to say, or rather, presents such extravagant accounts that nullify themselves through their sheer absurdity. Certainly it sounds absurd to hear that a woman educated only in the rudiments of French often shouted for hours in a coarse and idiomatic form of the language, or that same person, alone and guarded, complained wildly of a staring thing which bit and chewed at her. In 1772, the servant Zanus died and when Mrs. Harris heard of it, she laughed with a shocking delight utterly foreign to her. The next year, she herself died and was laid to rest in the North Burial Ground beside her husband. 
Upon the outbreak of trouble with Great Britain in 1775, William Harris, despite his scant 16 years and feeble constitution, managed to enlist in the Army of Observation under General Greene, and from that time on, enjoyed a steady rise in health and prestige. In 1780, as a captain in the Rhode Island forces in New Jersey under Colonel Angel, he met and married Phoebe Hetfield of Elizabethtown, whom he brought to Providence upon his honorable discharge in the following year. The young soldier's return was not a thing of unmitigated happiness. The house, it was true, was still in good condition, and the street had been widened and changed in name from Back Street to Benefit Street. But Mercy Dexter's once robust frame had undergone a sad and curious decay, so that now a stooped and pathetic figure with a hollow voice and disconcerting pallor, qualities shared to a similar degree by the one remaining servant, Maria, in the autumn of 1780. Phoebe Harris gave birth to a stillborn daughter, and on the 15th of the next May, Mercy Dexter took leave of a useful, austere, and virtuous life. William Harris, at last thoroughly convinced of the radically and unhealthful nature of the abode, now took steps toward quitting it and closing it forever, securing temporary quarters for himself and his wife at the newly opened Golden Ball Inn he arranged for the building of a new and finer house in Westminster Street, the growing part of the town across the Great Bridge. There, in 1785, his son Dute was born, and there the family dwelt till the encroachments of commerce drove them back across the river and over the hill to Angel Street, in the newer East Side Residence District, where the late Archer Harris built his sumptuous but hideous French-roofed mansion in 1876. William and Phoebe both succumbed to the yellow fever epidemic in 1797, but Dute was brought up by his cousin Rathbone Harris, Peleg's son. Rathbone was a practical man, had rented the Benefit Street house, despite William's wish to keep it vacant. He considered it an obligation to his ward to make the most of the boy's property, nor did he concern himself with the deaths or illnesses which caused so many changes of tenants, or the steadily growing aversion with which the house was generally regarded. It was likely he only felt vexation when, in 1804, the town council ordered him to fumigate the place with sulfur, tar, and gum camphor, on account of the much-discussed deaths of four persons, presumably caused by the then-diminishing fever epidemic. They said the place had a febrile smell. Dutay himself thought little of the house, for he grew up to be a privateersman and served with distinction under Captain Cahoon of the War of 1812. He returned unharmed, married in 1814, and became a father on that memorable night of September 23, 1815, when a great gale drove the waters of the bay over half the town and floated a tall sloop up Westminster Street so that the masts almost tapped Harris' windows in the symbolic affirmation that the new boy welcome was a seaman's son. Welcome did not survive, but lived to perish gloriously at Fredericksburg in 1862. Neither he nor his son Archer knew of the shunned house as other than a nuisance, almost impossible to rent, perhaps on account of the mustiness or sickly odor of the unkempt old age. Indeed, it never was rented after a series of six deaths culminating in 1861, which the excitement of the war tended to throw into obscurity. Carrington Harris, last of the male line, knew it only as a deserted and somewhat picturesque center of legend until I told him my experience.
experience. He had meant to tear it down and build an apartment house on the site, but after my account, decided to let it stand, install plumbing, and rent it. Nor has he had any difficulty in obtaining tenants. The horror was gone. Thank you once again for joining us today at the Patuxent General. If you have a question, an order, or would just like to contact us, our email is jess at patuxentgeneral.com. Don't hesitate to reach out. We'll get right back to you. But until then, I'll meet you right back here next time at the Patuxent General. Something for Posterity Productions, pre-recorded in Patuxent.